Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. It's great to be back. Our concert began with an amazing work by uh, one of the most interesting composers of the moment and someone with whom the Albany Symphony and I have had a long, very productive relationship. Jesse Montgomery is a New York-born composer who grew up on the Lower East Side, I think kind of in the Alphabet City neighborhood. Her mom uh, was a a radical stage director and playwright, and her father, a German-born jazz music studio owner. So she grew up in this incredible world filled with lots of cutting-edge art and culture, jazz music, and all sorts of different kinds of music of all the different people who came through her father's studio. And uh, she began her life and career as a violinist, uh, went to Juilliard, studied the violin there, and at the same time was always uh, improvising, not jazz improvisation as much as sort of some type of very unique classical improvisation, and creating her own music, and evolved into really, I think, maybe the most exciting composer of the moment. She has more than 400 orchestral uh, performances this year, I believe, and she's just become the composer in residence of the Chicago Symphony, uh, and she teaches uh, in New York City, and is just on fire. Uh, We're delighted at the Albany Symphony because we've worked with her closely for a number of years from the time she was really beginning her composing career. She did a one-year residency with us, and we've commissioned orchestral works from her and performed them. And so we're delighted to welcome her back for this concert, our opening of the season. And this is a piece that I had wanted to do pre-pandemic. It was scheduled for a year or two ago and kept getting moved later. So we're delighted to finally be able to present it. It's a, a very recent work, as things go, from 2017, written for the Chicago Sinfonietta, uh, called Coincident Dances. And actually, that's an incredibly apt title. It's really, uh, the way Jesse describes it, uh, a walk she took or a number of walks she took or an imagined walk a little bit uh, American in Paris style, because that's also about a walk being taken. But in her case, it's a walk through her neighborhood. And whenever she walks through her neighborhood, she encounters an incredible array of different kinds of musical style. And so she decided to kind of create a composition based on that, an almost Ivesian compilation, maybe the wrong word, but a, a, a wonderful amalgam of all these different kinds of influences. So one hears um, Latin jazz next to samba, next to jam band music, next to English madrigal. There's even a crazy moment where this wild samba gets going, and I'm pretty positive that you hear uh, libiamo, libiamo, from La Traviata in the brass against this samba. So it really is an amazing walk through her neighborhood. And as she described, you know, once she was walking through and heard this great Latin music while she was wearing uh, headphones listening to rhythm and blues. So just as, uh, as Charles Ives loved the idea of two marching bands starting on either side of town and crashing into each other sonically, uh, a lot of her piece does that, but it does it in a very joyful, beautiful, exciting way. So here it is, all of these 
different musics coinciding with each other, Jesse Montgomery's coincident dances. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Jesse Montgomery's Coincident Dances, performed by the Albany Symphony with me, David Allen Miller, conducting. Next on our program, because this was our first time really back in the hall with a full audience, as well as our wonderful new digital audience, uh, I wanted really to make it a celebration both of the triumph of the human spirit, uh, triumph over adversity, as personified in the big work on the second half of the program, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. At the same time, I, of course, wanted to celebrate our own time as we had as we did with Jesse Montgomery's Coincident Dances, but I also wanted to just celebrate the sheer sonic beauty of what orchestras do, because I think one of the things that we've all been kind of amazed and disturbed by during this long, difficult year and a half plus uh, is how much we miss the sheer, genuine... Uh, impactful sense of being in a room hearing live music. We've heard lots of great uh, streamed music and music that's produced live and sent out. But as we all say, there really is no substitute for that real in-the-room live performance. And so I wanted to celebrate that idea and show in a certain way in our opening concert just kind of the, the vast panoply of what an orchestra is capable of. So Jesse's piece, obviously a very big, bold, dramatic, exciting, contemporary statement, but also these two beautiful tone poems by the great uh, Finnish master, Jan Sibelius. Uh, these are two tone poems of a group of very early works that Sibelius wrote uh, in the early mid-1890s when he was just starting out on his professional career. Uh, he'd begun to get noticed with a couple of early works, and he went off to the main part of Europe, to Central Europe, and went on a big sort of musical listening tour. In fact, I, I believe if I read correctly, he, he heard seven Wagner operas, which actually exerted an incredible, powerful influence on his subsequent works all the way through his career, but particularly on these pieces, and was very intrigued by Wagner's orchestral sensibility and just sound world. Uh, and he heard lots of other different kinds of music, a lot of Richard Strauss, uh, somebody with whom he became quite friendly, and uh, came back to, to Finland. And of course, at this time, Finland as you probably know, for many, many years, was not its own country, uh, for many centuries, in fact. Uh, for about 500 years, until roughly 1809, it was part of Sweden and very much connected to Sweden uh, and uh, and ruled by Sweden. And then in 1809, it became part of Russia and stayed that way essentially through the Russian Revolution, the early 1900s. But in the 1890s and even before, this whole flowering uh, of Finnish nationalism began to take place. Uh, the elites in Finland typically were very much Swedish influenced and spoke Swedish and such, but there was this whole kind of welling up of the Finnish national character, really from the peasantry, from from the people. And uh, as happened in many other countries, if you think of Dvorak in the Czech Republic or any number of different nationalist composers of the era, um, this was an era when nation states were really owning their own history in, I think, frankly, a, at that time, at least a very positive way by and large. And people in Finland, particularly in Helsinki, the capital where Sibelius mainly was, uh, began to really embrace this idea of Finnish history, Finnish culture, Finnish identity. And in doing this, they turned to the great uh, book 
of Finnish um, mythology, actually a collection that had only been formulated in the 1830s, although it was made up of all of these ancient uh, epics and such, the Kalevala. And so many of Sibelius's early works and works throughout his career are influenced or inspired by the Kalevala, none more so than this set of four tone poems, the Lemminkainen Suite, as it's called. And in fact, it's a suite of four different uh, tone poems of varying length, uh, two of which are rather long, 16 or 17 minutes. Those are the two we're actually not playing on the concert. And then one of which, which has become very, very famous, the beautiful Swan of Tuonela, which is only about nine or 10 minutes. And then the fabulous uh, Lemminkainen's Return, the final tone poem of the group of four. And while Sibelius didn't really think of these things as a symphony, uh, essentially he ultimately grouped them as a group of four tone poems, sort of along the lines of the way Smetana uh, created Mavlast, my, my land or my country, this set of, of his tone poems, which included uh, um, the Moldau. Uh, Sibelius turned these four pieces into something like a, a sweet symphony of sorts. But in his own lifetime, and particularly in the 1890s and, and beyond, it was these two works that the Albany Symphony and I are playing this evening on this concert uh, that are the ones that became really very popular. That being the case, uh, Lemon Kanan is a very significant figure in the Kalevala. He's kind of a an anti-hero hero, a bit of a, of a rogue, a womanizer, a a little bit irresponsible, and he goes on these wild adventures. In the case of the Swan of Tuonela, uh, he has very strange and bizarre adventures. He, um, he has to do these quests, and among the quests, he's supposed to kill this beautiful swan that swims around in the river that protects uh, the land of the dead, uh, Tuonela, beautiful river. And uh, he gets there but does not manage to kill the swan and is instead murdered by a, a, a blind shepherd uh, and who then dismembers his body and spreads it in the river. His mother has to come rescue his parts, and she sews him back together and breathes life back into him, and he ends up you know, riding home eventually. So these two movements uh, are this very evocative, very introspective, very Wagnerian uh, work that I think at the time was considered quite unique and continues to sound as fresh as it did when Sibelius wrote it, The Swan of Tuonella. It's uh, famous in the orchestral repertoire because it features as its central element this beautiful extended English horn solo. Uh, the English horn, of course, being the larger cousin of the oboe. It's not a horn at all. And as our English hornist explained before the concert, uh, it's neither English nor is it a horn. Uh, it's an oboe. And that term English horn comes from the, the name corps anglais. I think anglais was somehow perhaps misinterpreted. It may have meant an angled horn or an English horn or any of a number of other things. Uh, but it's come to be known as the English horn. It has a beautiful, rich kind of baritonal sound. And um, our soloist is our own brilliant English hornist, Grace Shryock. And she plays this beautiful solo in which the English horn represents the swan itself, and the orchestra is essentially this dark, beautiful river upon which the swan swims around the land of the dead. And what's what's most unique about this piece is really its, its sense of stasis, that it's just beautiful, and yet it doesn't really have a sense of 
like beginning, middle, or end, or direction. And, and in that sense, it's it's somehow similar on its own very different terms to Debussy's breakthrough work from the same time, Afternoon of a Fawn, a piece that just sort of exists in a different sense of time from what we Western musicians and music lovers tend to think of in terms of pieces that have beginnings, middles, and ends, and destinations, and teleologic sensibilities, etc. So that's the beautiful Swan of Tunella, and we follow it with uh, this rousing, great uh, early Sibelius tone poem, uh, Lemon Canaan's Return, particularly noteworthy for the fact that it's got such rich and unusual colors. The way he combines the horns and the bassoons obviously owes a great deal to Wagner, but has its own freshness, its own uniquely Sibelius-like Finnish sensibility to it. Uh, And also the kind of irregularity of the phrase structure and the sheer dynamism of the music. So here are two tone poems uh, from the Lemminkainen suite. They are The Swan of Tuonela, followed by Lemminkainen's Return. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Those were two uh, suites from the Lemon Canaan suite. Uh, first, the Swan of Tuonela, featuring our English hornist Grace Shryock, followed by Lemon Canaan's Return. The second half of our program featured one monumental work, and this is a work that I've been thinking about all through the pandemic. It's one of those pieces that, at least for me personally, has kept me going, because to me, not only is this one of my absolute alpha pieces, and to me, arguably or possibly the most transformational single work in the history of orchestral music, but because the piece is so much about its creator's belief system, his complete faith in the triumph of hope over despair, of humanity over difficulty, of life over death. It is Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, his mighty third symphony, a piece that literally did just change the course of music history uh, in a way that just no other piece I can think of did. It ushered in, in one sense, entirely single-handedly the entire Romantic era uh, and, you know, its place uh, in terms of chronologically in time, having been composed mainly in 1803 and completed in 1804 and premiered in 1805, really does, in essence, allow it to kind of make all later, uh, certainly orchestral and and, uh, Western music possible. Just the sheer scope of the work, the monumental architecture of it, the experience of it, the way Beethoven builds unbelievably powerful architectural structures out of these minimal, small gestures and and kind of ur ideas is something that, frankly, had never been conceived of in, in music prior to this work. At the same time, the other thing that I think is most revolutionary in this work is that it's, it's so strongly a narrative work. It's not... Um, pictorial in that it's not like at this point we hear the such and such and at that point we hear the so and so but it is at least in my mind without a doubt a very clear depiction uh, in abstract musical terms of Napoleon and while Beethoven as everybody knows disavowed that uh, idea uh, when Napoleon declared himself emperor in 1804 
Beethoven supposedly said to his student Schindler, you know, now he's betrayed all the ideals I thought he had. And Beethoven, you know, ripped out the title Bonaparte. It was to be called Symphony Bonaparte uh, or his Bonaparte Symphony uh, and decided to change the name of the work uh, from Bonaparte to Eroica, to simply Heroic Symphony. I, of course, personally think that that was probably the work of his incredibly effective public relations director, Murray, because uh, what it did was it, it universalized the work. Prior to that change, the work was very specifically about Bonaparte. And of course, to us in our present time, 200 years after Bonaparte's death, almost exactly, uh, we don't necessarily understand what Bonaparte represented in 1803. But I can assure you that having read <laughs> a great deal of the history of the period and about Bonaparte and Beethoven, Bonaparte was like a meteor uh, that, that streaked across the sky of Europe and the world. There had never been a sort of self-made hero who represented more of kind of the the, the triumph of human struggle over adversity, over challenges, the, the heroism of his, you know, having been the general who essentially led uh, France out of the revolutionary period and into the great era of the early 19th century when Napoleon seemed invincible. Uh, his persona was so romantic and so heroic and so overpowering and all-consuming. It was something that I think Europeans and people around the world just embraced and, and, and felt was one of the kind of animating aspects of their time. And in many ways, the, the similarities or the resonances between Bonaparte and Beethoven himself, at least at this time, are so great. Beethoven, like Bonaparte, was in essence a self-made genius. I mean, he came really, you know, pretty much from nowhere, from Bonn. He wasn't really a Vaughn. He was just a van. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it was he who, when he performed as a young man in the 1790s, if the nobility for whom he was performing were chatting or eating or whatever, he would stop and glower at them. And he, he was, in essence, our first self-proclaimed artistic genius, demanding to be noticed and shaking the heavens in a, in a musical way, just as Napoleon was shaking the heavens in a military way. So a similar kind of unbelievable, visionary, revolutionary figure in his own musical terms and, and really you know, in a certain way, uh, exerting a similar kind of profound influence on all of future history. So Beethoven felt a, a sort of weird kinship to Napoleon that eventually grew into a kinship slash revulsion as Napoleon became ever more uh, power-crazed and ever more self-involved and ever more uh, risk-taking. Uh, I think Beethoven's relationship with Napoleon, his idea of Napoleon, um, was forever in flux. He renounced him in this work, but at the same time, he still was fascinated by him and quite amazed by him. So the piece really is a Bonaparte piece uh, that wisely he changed to call the Heroic Symphony. And at the core, at the heart of the piece, is this amazing, very... Um, very pictorial second movement of this funeral march uh, that is more than just a funeral march because throughout the movement, there are these kind of reflections. There's this amazing C major return early in the, the second movement after the initial funeral march where you have this dark piece turned into this incredible sort of uh, um, reaching toward a sort of heroism or a remembering of, of heroism uh, as it becomes this triumphant music and then sinks back to the funeral march. And then there are these different episodes, the amazing fugue and such, and, you know, an 
a crazy moment where he reaches for a high A flat and there's this powerful low A flat and you have the sense of struggle and of of despair and of uh, of almost giving up and and just very very uh, rich evocative things that are are graphic but that are that are abstract enough that each of us each listener can take his or her own his or her own meaning from this music but to me it's not as simple as saying a funeral march and for many years you know scholars and and theorists wondered well how could beethoven bury the hero in the second movement of his symphony when he has a third and fourth movement to go to me it's not as concrete a funeral march as that it's more of the the hero looking back over his life of thinking about it, perhaps uh, revisiting the moments of triumph, of despair, and ultimately ending in death, but not as concrete as the hero dies and then has to get up and perform the third and fourth movements. It's much more abstract than that. Uh, The first movement, of course, the biggest, most extended movement ever conceived of or, or written in all of music history to the period, longer than most whole symphonies of the prior period, uh, an amazing construct that he builds out of this simple arpeggio, that in essence, I think, depicts the battles and struggles of our heroes. So that that is the first movement. The second movement is this reflect, reflecting on life and death. The third movement, uh, a wonderful, it's where he basically invents the scherzo out of the classical minuet of Mozart and Haydn. Uh, the scherzo the technical word being an Italian word for a joke. It's not really a joke, but it's a lively, kind of crazier, more abandoned uh, third movement that's no longer simply a, a formal dance, but a much kind of wilder dance of life. In this case, possibly a depiction of battle, and certainly in the trio, the middle section, where we have this wonderful horn trio, the three horns do this fabulous set of military calls. We have the sense of of battle, of some kind of call to battle. And then the finale, to many scholars and theorists, the most perplexing of all the movements, this theme that Beethoven kept coming back to over and over again, that he'd used first in his ballet, The Creatures of Prometheus, a few years before as the final movement. It was called in English, a kind of contradance. But Beethoven was captivated by this theme and by the possibility it had for, for variations. So in The Creatures of Prometheus, he wrote variations. He then followed that with a set of wonderful piano variations, and then he used those Prometheus variations for this finale. Interestingly, they start with kind of the, the skeleton, the, the base of the theme, which is already its own unusual thing. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 and he varies that, and then it's only by about the third variation that he actually attaches the theme to that. There's been lots of discussion, well, after all of these powerful, dramatic, particularly first and second movements, why does he write such a flashy, fast, not quite as heavy finale that's a set of variations? And my contention is that that in The Creatures of Prometheus, the reason he uses this idea and is so drawn to it, that, that ballet is not about the Prometheus who's having his insides pecked out of him, chained to a rock. That's Prometheus, the wise prince of the Scythians, Scythians uh, who, who is um, bringing culture and, and uh, knowledge and wisdom to this sort of barbaric people. Uh, and so it's this, this kind of celebration of the wise prince, of the wise, just prince. And so when we think back to Napoleon, Beethoven, 1803, 1804, it's a celebration of the, the sort of civilizing influence of the great prince. 
And that, I think, makes it a very beautiful and fitting end to this piece. I'll also mention that the other thing that's so uh, arresting about the piece is just the sheer extremities of the piece. Beethoven litters the first movement with uh, sforzandi. A sforzando is a marking that essentially means to force the sound when you have a real sudden accent. Uh, and Beethoven writes them, he, he litters the score with them literally in a way that no composer prior to him ever had. It's, it's maybe bound up with the fact that you know, two years earlier, he had finally confessed in his Heiligenstadt testimony that he was, in fact, going deaf and having a terrible existential crisis and thinking of ending his own life. I think that this piece is somehow wrapped up with that own personal struggle of Beethoven's. And in a way, the piece is almost clamoring to be heard. And the extremes of dynamics, of louds, of softs, of explosive, um, uh, extreme dynamics reflecting extreme emotions is very much a part of this piece. So we play it in a way that I think really accentuates that. It accentuates the classical aspects of it, the really rather brisk tempi that Beethoven specifies in the score. We try to observe rather closely, but we also really observe, I hope, in this performance, and I hope it comes through, uh, this explosive nature of the piece seemingly almost careening out of control at various points, which I think is actually the way Beethoven conceived of it. So here it is now, the epic-changing, epic-making Beethoven Eroica Symphony, one of my absolute all-time Desert Island pieces. It is performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.